Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find links to purchase the music you hear on the show, along with a donate button in case you'd like to give something directly back to the Jazz Session. And thank you to the many folks who've done that already. My guest today is Taylor Ho Bynum. He's a cornet player, and he's also involved in many, many exciting projects, uh, both as a musician and also as a uh, non-profit director, board member. It's pretty amazing when you hear in the course of this interview the things that Taylor has a hand in. And coming up in just a couple of days, he's going to be involved in the big Anthony Braxton uh, birthday celebration which I have dubbed Braxton Palooza, although that's not its actual name, which is coming up uh, this Friday and Saturday, the 18th and 19th of June, 2010. And if you go to the show notes at thejazzsession.com, you'll find links to tell you all about the big Braxton Festival, which is amazing. Everybody is going to be in it, and uh, you should go check it out. It's pretty incredible. First, though, here's a track from Taylor's uh, new recording with Toma Fujiwara, and this album is called Stepwise. This is the lead-off track. My guest is Taylor Hobynum. He is on uh, many records and many projects, including Madeline Dreams with Spider Monkey Strings and a new album um, with Toma Fujiwara, whose name I just learned how to pronounce. Uh, that's fantastic, a duet recording out on Not Two Records. Um, and it is my pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is the second interview we're recording at my at my folks' dining room table in the uh, the dining room table studio here, and uh, putting the band together slowly but surely. Uh, so I, I do thank you for for well, coming it's, it's out. A, it's a lovely view. It's <laughs> yeah, Thelonious Monk's old neighborhood. That's exactly know? right. Yeah, so, one block down, man. Yeah, so, uh, so it feels like a good spot. <laughs> that's right. The, the jazz gods are with us. Um, I wanted to start off talking about uh, about the album with Toma and and just the idea of of duo playing mm-hmm. and what either freedoms or constrictions or both um, it kind of brings to mm-hmm. the to the set. Well, my particular relationship with Toma um, goes back almost 20 years now. I mean, but I'm a young man, so it's... it's, it's That's it's, right, since you were four. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Since, well, since we, were, since we were in high school, anyways. Um, we had grown up in neighboring towns in Boston um, and had met through mutual friends, so started playing together way back in those days and then kept playing together all through college. Um, and so it's it's nice, it's the reflection, but we've gone you know many different directions over the course of our lives. So it's sort of nice to have people that you can reconnect with and, and continue a relationship with over that length of time. So there's a real, I'd like to feel there's a real uh, language that we've developed between the two of us um, that has a fairly unique quality that has a lot to do with who we are as people. I think that's one of the things I like about duos is it forces you away from necessarily uh, your instrumental identity because in that context you're forced to do many things outside of what one is normally expected to do on one's instrument. So, you know, I'm playing a rhythmic role a lot of the time. Tom is playing a melodic role a lot of the time. Um, and so I, it's 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 a very rewarding project, you know. And, and he's you know he's a marvelous drummer and and a you know really interesting composer and band leader who's really been coming into his own as a leader in the last few years. And so it's nice for us. Um, you know, and he's worked in a lot of the groups that I lead as a band leader. So it's nice to come. This is sort of the place where we meet on, you know, equal ground face to face and mix it about a little bit. So.
And it seems like, uh, I guess we've all kind of been conditioned to expect a chordal instrument in most settings that we listen to because mm-hmm. it's so it's so common, and there isn't one in that mm-hmm. setting, which uh, which I don't miss when I listen <laughs> to the record, and uh, and which just seems very liberating. Yeah, and I think particularly, again, with a duo context, it really becomes highly conversational. You know, even in a trio context, if you have, you know, a horn, a bass, and a drum, you end up sort of... In some ways, you know, you certainly want to push to avoid that, but it's, it's difficult not to avoid those sort of traditional roles of okay, this is the this is the soloist instrument, and this is the rhythm section. Um, again, in this context, it, it, it really becomes a dialogue, um, and I think one of the things that's particularly interesting for us, I think, is trying to also really blend what's composed and what's improvised, mm-hmm. because you know, when it's someone that you've played with for 20 years. Um, there's some things that you might do spontaneously, yet you recognize where the other person's going and you find a natural place to go. And the flip side of that might be when there's someone you're playing with for 20 years, it's really nice to screw with them and throw them something that they might not have expected at all. And that's a nice challenge, you know? This is certainly someone who's heard all my licks, so I have to make sure I come up with something new. And so there's a really nice challenge inherent in that. You, uh, you're playing in general, you seem to put yourself in situations where conversation, uh, kind of deep attention and listening is really a, a kind of a hallmark, it seems, of what you do, mm-hmm. the bands you put together and the bands you associate yourself with. Is that, uh, is that something that's always attracted you to this music? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think for me, I tend to be interested as an improviser uh, more, as you said, in, in a conversational quality, um, perhaps a vocal quality or even an abstract narrative quality, as opposed to um, necessarily pursuing, you know, harmonic innovations, you know, or, or extraordinarily complicated rhythmic structures. You know, I, I feel what I'm interested in doing is, is uh, trying to craft a voice out of manipulation of sound itself. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, that becomes very much, I think, natural to the way we communicate as human beings, you know, beyond that. Um, and so trying to carry that into music, I think that's one of the things that's always attracted me I mean, particularly to the instrument. You know, one of the reasons I play the cornet is is that tradition of, of you know you go back to the '20s with the Ellington Band and that extraordinary you know the Bubber Miley, Cootie Williams, Cootie Williams role of just you know wholly vocalized things, but but this sort of bizarre you know surreal vocalization that you can't you know that sounds incredibly human yet completely unhuman at the same time, um, and I think that's you know what I want to try to go for with this music is 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 to do that do to be explicitly who I am, yet not sound like anything, <laughs> if sure. that makes sense. Sure. Uh, I was going to get to this, but since you've just mentioned what instrument you play, I'll, I'll do it now. Uh, one of the useful things about me hosting the show is that my own ignorance is useful for the listeners, because we can all find things out <laughs> together. I can honestly say, despite having listened to jazz my entire life, I have no idea what the difference between a trumpet and a cornet is. So it's, it's, it's very subtle. I mean, I, it, the, to get very technical, the difference is that the Cornet is a conical bore instrument, which means the tubing slowly expands throughout the body of the instrument, whereas a trumpet sort of flares out at the end. Um, and so that changes the quality of the sound to a certain extent. So it becomes a little bit more like a French horn or a, even a trombone, where there's a little bit of a rounder quality to the sound as opposed to the directness of a trumpet. Um, but really, that's about it, <laughs> the difference. I mean, it's three valves, same basic technique to play, same register. Um, so it's really almost wholly a timbral difference and really a little bit of a response difference because of, the, because of that slight difference in the horn. It does physically react differently when you play it, so you have to learn it in a slightly different way. But the basic technique is, is identical, so it's, it's, a, it's a subtle difference. Um, Again, I think because, as I said, I like to play with sound, I, I find it a slightly more flexible and more vocal instrument. Um, it doesn't have necessarily the brightness or accuracy or the directness of a trumpet, but it has a, there's a subtlety in the way that you can manipulate the sound that I think is unique to it. So, so that's why I ended up gravitating in that direction. And so it was an intentional choice at some point? In yeah, your I point. came up as a trumpet player, as most people do uh, sure. nowadays, although in the old days everyone used to come up as cornet players. Um, and I made the switch when I was about in my mid, early mid-twenties. Um, so I've, for about the last ten years, um, I really haven't played B-flat trumpet at all. Um, I play you know, some flugelhorn and some bass trumpet and piccolo trumpet and trombone with a trumpet mouthpiece. Um, but actually I've, I, I tend to avoid just the normal B-flat trumpet. Um, 
and, and uh, you know, I, I still have much love for trumpet players, and I still feel that it's you know, still the same family. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very closely related cousin. Sure. Um, but I, I do like to think there is a slightly different identity to it, and I, I tend to do feel a particular sense of camaraderie with this, the tiny handful of other cornet players that are out there. How did you first play cornet? How did it even happen? I was playing in a band, uh, this great group in Boston called the Fully Celebrated Orchestra. Um, we had a weekly gig, uh, and the bass player in that group... Uh, Timoshenko had actually suggested it to me. He was said, you know, he's like, you know, for what you're doing, you should really give this a shot. Um, and uh, it, it just happened. This guy I knew had a 1910 vintage con cornet lying in his basement, so he gave it to me for like 200 bucks. And actually, the first night I played it was with that band, and just immediately I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. You know, it just it just felt it just felt really natural. And, and you know, it took me some time to really understand the subtleties of the instrument, but I really had an immediate connection to it. And then, so since then, I, that's been that's been my thing. Oh, that's great. Where did the is there something in your background out of the music that you listened to growing up or your particular training that that led you to this uh, really sound based approach to improvising and performing? I think um, I mean part is just what you know happens to attract one's proclivities, sure. um, but I also I think I was very very lucky in that um, from you know age you know I came up classically trained as a trumpet player and I had my first teacher way back in the day, uh, Mr. Pettipaw. Um, was a very good teacher and, and did focus on tone a lot. So I think, you know, I wasn't about, I didn't have a teacher who was trying to get me to play super high or super fast. Right. Um, and then when I was about 15, I met uh, Bill Lowe, who's a fantastic bass trombone player and tuba player and composer. Um, and I just think I got very lucky because Bill is, a, you know, someone he worked with, you know, Henry Threadgill and Muhal Richard Abrams and Frank Foster and Thad Jones, you know, very expansive idea of what jazz and improvisation is. Um, and it just has a gorgeous tone. I mean, the bass trombone is just such a special instrument. Um, and so I think I had him as an early, having him as really my first jazz teacher, I think, you know, and he wasn't someone who, you know, obviously I learned, you know, basic harmonic theory, you know, jazz theory from him, but it wasn't, but it was never uh, prioritized or or sort of lionized or, or the way it is in sort of most jazz pedagogy these days, you know, I think so often the way jazz is taught is like, okay, you learn these harmonic progressions and you learn these chords and you practice these notes and you play along with your Abersol records and that's the way you do it. Um, and I was very lucky. I, I kind of skipped that completely. I mean, I really had someone who's like, no, you, you stand up and you improvise and you make music, <laughs> you know, and we'll figure out the stuff later, you know, and I'll show you when you need to figure out what the chords are, I'll show you it. But, so I think that was really revelatory. And then, you know, I met Braxton when I was about 18. And then again, you know, there's another just extraordinary, you know, I mean, just a genius and a mentor who, again, you know, deals with all sorts of music, you know, and he deals with harmony, he deals with melody, he deals with rhythm, but he's also someone um, who doesn't... Uh, unnecessarily uh, focus on one thing over the other. It's all, it's really all at play. And so that was a big influence, you know, I think. And then a lot of the players I gravitated towards, um, that was their thing. You know, as, as much as I love 
you know, Clifford Brown or, or Booker Little or Woody Shaw, the people that really got me, you know, I mean, Miles, first of all, and that's as much as he did the harmonic stuff, it's really, you know, when you think of Miles, you don't think of the scales he's playing, you think of, like, a raw note, you know, and then that led me, you know, to in one direction to the early Ellington guys, you know, and Red Allen and, 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 and Rex Stewart and people like that that we're talking about, and then on the flip side, people like Bill Dixon and Wadada Leo Smith, who, again, just could... And for me, that, that's just what, you know, just what kind of set my heart a quiver, you know, or my ear drums a wiggling or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever gets one excited to keep practicing and playing music. So, so I think it just pulled me in that direction. I'm glad you brought up Bill Dixon. I watched the, uh, the DVD of the most recent album being recorded, mm-hmm. and uh, which was such a brilliant idea. I don't know who decided to release the film of it, too. Maybe it was Bill. But it, it well, was I'll a great... Take, I'll, I'll take a was production credit for that. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> That's something that we really wanted to do. It was a great idea, because um, when you listen to a record like that, it is a particularly... I'm somewhere between a lay person and an educated person. Mm-hmm. And, and I find when I listen to that kind of music, um, there's... There's something opaque about the process to me, and about uh, and getting that kind of you know fly on the wall view of what was happening in that studio for that album uh, was really was really eye opening for mm-hmm. me. And I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about the experience of recording with that. Definitely. Album. I mean, well, one of the reasons we wanted to do that um, is because I've just found you know I, I've only had the uh, the opportunity to work with Bill over the last four or five years. Um, but throughout that, and certainly, you know, like Stephen Haynes, who co-produced the record with me, who's another fantastic trumpet player, you know, has known Bill for 35. So, you know, but from all of our experiences, the thing anyone who works with Bill always says, he's just someone who drops so much wisdom in the rehearsal process. You know, it's really, you know, you're hanging out with a philosopher. You know, you just want to capture all these things he's saying because it really, uh, his ideas, he's so articulate in his thoughts about talking about the music and, and, He's just such a philosopher of art, you know, and so we really wanted to capture that. Um, and so much of his thing is about the process. Um, Bill's someone who might bring in four notes and then spend two hours making sure those notes sound just the way he was thinking about. And there's a purity of sound and a purity of intent and uh, that, that is almost impossible to capture any other way than really being there. I mean, you can write about it, um, you can discuss it, but there's, we really wanted to show really should give an inside view of what Bill's process is, because I think that's a great part of his genius, as much as his, I mean, he completely revolutionized the trumpet as a, tech, as a technical instrument, you know, just opened up new vistas of, that we can play in. But as an ensemble leader and as an orchestra leader and his ideas of orchestration and composition, there's a really, there's, there's a discursive, there's a verbal element to how it's taught. Um, as Bill would say, it's, it's not just about what notes you put on the page, but how you walk into the room that makes you a composer. That is notation. He's like, how I take my horn out of the case is notation. Um, and so we wanted to really show that, to really give a view of that. Um, and I also think it was nice because there's, I don't know if you've seen, there's a great documentary from, I think, 1981 called Imagine the Sound, um, which gives a view of that in that period. And so we really thought, he's really, you know, even at 85, he's really making a whole different kind of music. He's really so, he's evolved as an artist, and so it was really exciting for us to get a chance to document that in a similar way and try to... Um, try to get that across, um, you know, because we're we're lucky enough to get some of these masters while they're still alive. You know, we have the technology; we can make a digital film for you know. So you know, we we don't want to miss that chance. You know, so so you know, Bill's eighty five now. We want to get it down when we can because it's it's not wisdom that'll be around forever. So. following up on that, it seems like I've talked to a number of older musicians, the most recent one that springs to mind is Sonny Rollins, about the the nearly kind of monastic level of devotion to their art that was required of them to get to the level they got to. Mm-hmm. And so when you say things like, the way I walk into the room is notation, the way I take my horn out of the case is notation, it strikes me that those principles are somewhat challenging for the you know, for the students of that music, for the person watching that, to apply to their own life because they seem 
it seems like it requires an incredible amount of presence and intentionality in what mm -hmm. you do. So I just wondered what your experience has been of kind of incorporating those things into your own DNA to the degree that you, that you want to. Well, I think that's actually one of the reasons it's great to have the film, because I think you learn so much from people. Again, I, th I think one of the dangers with the way sort of jazz and creative music is being taught and, and institutionalized is, again, it's being reduced to... Uh, theoretical concept you know and oh bebop was this you know was the innovation of of you know tr you know tritone harmonic substitution and you know extensions on the chords but it was also about you know who dizzy gillespie and charlie parker were as people and how they reacted to their social cultural political environment um and so i think again i was very lucky in having people like braxton and 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 bill Lowe and bill dixon and just learning from not what they, I mean, learning from what they played, learning from what they wrote, but just learning from who they were, you know, and the presence they brought into a room and the way they approached the music. Um, and I think that's something that's so important. What makes this, for me, what's one of the things that makes it a very exciting sort of continuum of creative expression to be a part of, whatever one's going to call it, whether it be, you know, jazz, creative music, whatever the incredibly hip term Yusef Latif uses, but I can't remember, um, whatever you want to call it, one of the things that I think it makes it special is that interpersonal connection and really trying to sort of bringing across um, ideas and that were that are passed across generations and then reinvented you know i mean and and give being given the agency by those of earlier generations to carry out my own ideas that might be completely different than theirs but learn from the intent and the purpose and the conviction with which they pursued their own. Again, I, I really feel like I just got very lucky by having been around some people who were able to express these ideas and express these, in, in often in, in even a nonverbal context, you know, but just the just people's presence, people's commitment. And, and I think that's something that, you know, I want to try to carry out in my own work to some extent, you know. <laughs> Sure. Uh, is it necessary uh, with the people that you work with that they have a similar approach to the music? Well, I think anyone who's involved in this music, as you said, there's a, there's a level of monasticism, a level of seriousness that has to come with it. There's also just a basic level of sacrifice, like no one's going to get rich doing this. You know, I mean, this is, it's in a very, in a culture where things are defined by their monetary value, what we do is has no value. <laughs> you know, I mean, one, one has to make the choice to step outside of what are the defined cultural priorities. And that's a difficult choice to make. I mean, if you're going to say that, you have to be serious about it. You know, you, you can't do this, you know, if you're not serious about it because it's not worth it otherwise. You know, I mean, if you're not willing to, to give your, you know, to completely love it and completely commit to it, you know, you can have a much more satisfying life doing something else. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, by, by definition, I mean, anyone that I end up working with, all my collaborators and my peers, have, you know, really have that level of, 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 of involvement in their work and in what they're trying to do. So it's, it's built in, I think. Sure. <laughs> Hush. Hush, Mother says. Madeline is sleeping. when she sleeps. I do not want to wake her. The small sisters and brothers creep around the bed. Their gestures of silence becoming magnified and languorous. Fingers floating to pursed lips. Tiptoes rising and descending as if weightless. Circling around her bed suspended in sap, kicking dreamily before they crystallize into amber. Together they inhale softly, and the room fills with one endless exhalation of breath.
You uh, you mentioned early on in this discussion um, that your music can be fueled by abstract narrative, for example, and so I thought mm-hmm. that might be a nice way to introduce talking about Madeline Dreams. And mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about where that album came from and uh, kind of well, that's it's it's the um, the kind of the core of that album is a suite I wrote uh, using text from my sister's first novel. Uh, her name's Sarah Swanyan Bynum. The book was called Madeline is Sleeping. Um, and if I may boast, as a very proud brother, she was just named one of the top 20 uh, American fiction writers under 40 in the New Yorker. I saw that. So, That's great. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was very excited to see that. Um, so I'm just not the one who thinks she's great. <laughs> you know, I think many people agree. And so so I've just, I, loved, I just loved that book. I mean, beyond the obvious familial connection and sort of how much fun I, I thought it would be to sort of use my sister's text, I also just thought they were just incredibly beautiful words. Um, it's a... Sh- the book itself, Madeline is Sleeping, is a very um, almost magical realist um, novel, but that kind of playing with the idea of this, this girl in sort of 19th century France switching between uh, reality and dream world, and then the two start to sort of blend, and they're sort of historical characters pulled out of, uh, out of history that were sort of, that are historical characters, but have this sense of the of the absurd or have a sense of the fantastic. Um, you know, there's this, uh, a character who could fart on command in, in many keys, you know, and, and, you know, a woman who was, uh, uh, played all the pants roles in operas until she got replaced by Castrato and, and all these sort of really fascinating characters. And I just found it such a rich text. Um, but I didn't want to do an opera. You know, I didn't want to try to tell the whole story. Uh, the idea of that piece was just to kind of pull out little glimpses, so you know that there's a sense of connection. There's this, there's there's a built-in connection to it, but like a dream, it's not consistent, sure. you know. And so it kind of jumps from place to place. And I, I just felt the lyricism of the words created their own kind of beauty. Um, so I had a lot of fun with it. And I was lucky to work with uh, Kyoko Kitamura, who's just a fantastic vocalist and just so expressive and dramatic in the way she dealt with the text. And the ensemble is a group, uh, Spider Monkey Strings, that I've had for about five years now, um, that I sort of stumbled across by accident. It was my, my brother-in-law is a, is a filmmaker, and he asked me to put together a score for a film, and he wanted a string quartet. So I sort of did this group with cornet and string quartet and guitar, and then you know added a tuba player and a drummer, and just it became, I just had so much fun with it, it sort of became its own entity. So it's a group of musicians I've been lucky enough to work with for a while. So there's a very, uh, it was able to be kind of quite, really kind of nicely organic. I, was, I, I had a lot of fun with that project. Le Petoman. Will you uh, mention the the big Braxton celebration that's uh, that's coming? Absolutely. Um, right now, you know, I've, I, as I said, you know, Anthony's been you know one of my mentors since I was eighteen, and has just become you know just a close friend and regular collaborator, and just someone I'm just 
beyond thrilled to have a chance to work with because he, I think he's just doing some of, I mean, he's continuing to do just some of the most vibrant, uh, you know, innovative stuff. He just always is pushing himself and it's just an incredibly um, joyful process to be a part of that and just see what new idea he comes up with. And um, so I believe in it so much that I'm actually now the uh, president of the Tricentric Foundation, which is an organization um, that Anthony founded um, almost 15 years ago, but has been dormant for the last 10 years. So in the last couple of years, I've been working with him to restart that. And it's just an organization dedicated to really helping him realize some of his largest visions that are, you know, have no chance of succeeding in sort of a commercial marketplace. You know, the operas, the sonic genome projects with 60 musicians playing for eight straight hours, you know, the multiple orchestra pieces. The, and, and really to think about his legacy, you know, continuing his ideas, passing that along to the next generation, ex, you know, supporting the work of those that have, you know, that have come up inspired by his work. Um, so it's been, you know, we just recorded, uh, did the first studio recording of one of his operas, uh, four acts, 60 musicians. It was really a extraordinary experience. Um, I've never been part of a situation where there's that many musicians just completely committed, completely loving it. I mean, it was amazing to, you know, you just never see that in New York. You know, everybody's jaded, <laughs> you know, and to have all these people be part of this process and just giving their all and, and just really being in it together was just an incredibly inspiring experience, um, which is why I got involved with this. You know, one of the reasons, we're, one of the kinds of things we're trying to do with this is foundation. So we're trying to create a context that we can, you know, get this opera out and, you know, finish all the post-production and get it released. Um, we're also trying to make that ensemble a permanent entity so we can have regular rehearsals, regular performances, really explore these ideas to the fullest. Um, so in, since Anthony's turning 65, actually turned 65 two days ago of the recording of this interview, but uh, two weeks after his 65th birthday coming up, we're going to be doing a, sort of a benefit concert, two nights of, of concerts where all the performers are donating their services to raise money for the foundation. Um, and it's, I'm really quite touched of the performers who came out in, in Anthony's honor. Um, we have uh, Dave Douglas and John Zorn, um, the classic quartet uh, with Marilyn Chris Bell and, and Mark Dresser and Jerry Hemingway are coming back together to play for this. Um, Nicole Mitchell and Steve Coleman, Richard Teitelbaum, Matthew Welch. Um, then we have a whole generation of the younger generation performers are going to be doing a thing at Issue Project Room uh, with Mary Halverson and Jessica Pavone, uh, Tyshawn Sori, Chris Jonas, uh, Steve Lehman, James Fay. I mean, it's just an amazing group of people. Andrew Rafa-Dewar, it just keeps going. <laughs> and the cast and orchestra of the opera are getting together to do some excerpts from the piece. So it's just going to be sort of a two-day marathon of music of people, of, uh, and Anthony's own group, the 12 Plus One, is performing, and he'll be conducting the orchestra. But it's, just, it's, just a very, it's going to be a very exciting event, because he's someone who's so always looking to the future. We rarely have a chance to assess the past and the present. And so I'm just, you know, the fact that we're bringing together these performers that have been following his music or been inspired by his music or have been performing with him over the past 30 years is really something special. So oh, it should great. be a fun event. So will you tell people uh, the dates and where they can find out more uh, about the performance? Yes, the, uh, the dates will be June 18th at Le Poussin Rouge in Manhattan and June 19th at Issue Project Room in Brooklyn. Um, and I think the concerts are running from about 6 to 11 o'clock each night. Okay. Um, and you can find, we're actually going to be, one of the things that the foundation is working on, we're launching a new website for Anthony's work, um, anthonybraxton.org, and that's going to be the home for the Tricentric Foundation. There's going to be an online record label releasing uh, digital-only um, things ranging from his working groups currently to archival material from, you know, with some incredible people from the past 30 years. Um, the sort of one-stop spot for his writings, you know, critical essays. And hopefully we're going to have sort of an experimental, the friendly experiencer zone, where you just kind of dive in and see what happens. There'll be multiple, you'll have to mix your own projects. You sort of go between multiple screens and multiple <laughs> pieces of music playing oh, at the same time. Great. It should be fun. Is there a, a big wealth of unreleased material? Oh, there's a, I mean, as much as Anthony's released, there's even more that's unreleased. So. Wow. Absolutely. There's, there's, yeah, there's, there's some pretty incredible stuff we'll be getting out, so that's going to be a lot of fun. That's great.
I want to talk about a couple of the things um, that you're involved with. You start off with the, the Festival of Your Trumpet Music. Tell folks about that. Yeah, that's, it's a pretty uh, cool organization. I've been, I'm now the vice president of that. Uh, it's a, it was founded by Dave Douglas and Roy Campbell um, about six years ago, and Dave's still the president. Um, so cornets are okay, apparently. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I think it should be FONC. I think it's a much better <laughs> you know, acronym than FONT. But anyways... Um, it's, uh, but what I like about it is that because it's, it's a festival organized by instrument as opposed to genre, we really can make some sort of interesting connections. You know, so at our last festival, we had, you know, the brass music of Charles Warren and, and Ornette Coleman on the same night, you know, because it's music they wrote for the trumpet. You know, we could have, and I think there's something very cool about that. So it's been nice getting a chance as an organization to celebrate some people who are under-recognized. You know, we gave Lifetime Achievement Awards to Leo Smith and to Bobby Bradford. And these are two of my absolute heroes who no one ever talks about, you know, or I'm, they're both getting some more attention now, but neither of them had ever gotten an award before. And that was something that we felt very good about. Um, and sort of help emerging composers, you know, we commissioned a lot of new work. So it's just a nice way to keep, point out the vibrancy of the instrument right now. Even though I'm a cornet player, I still love my trumpet playing brothers and sisters. And uh, it's, it's a really rich generation right now. I think it's, there's just so many great players and it's doing extraordinary things. So it's, it's nice to push that envelope. Oh, that's great. Talk about Firehouse 12. Um, that's uh, the record label I'm sort of the founding partner of. Uh, and we put out the Bill Dixon Project, as yep. you mentioned, and we did. <laughs> the first thing we put out was a 9CD plus DVD uh, Anthony Braxton box set. So we're not small, a right? wise label, <laughs> yeah. but we are a uh, deeply committed and enthusiastic one. And it's been nice, too. We put out uh, Mary Halverson's debut record and Peter Evans and Tyshawn Sori. So it's been a nice mix of sort of large-scale definitive works by sort of living legends and then really trying to spotlight some of the younger artists that we think are doing extraordinary stuff. Um, so And it's been, it, for a free jazz record label coming out in, in an economic crisis it's been you know doing pretty well we've gotten you know the 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 level of sort of critical and and uh cultural interest in some of the people has really been gratifying i've been kind of amazed so yeah several previous guests on this show have been on that label so uh, yeah yeah it's been great um and then uh will you mention positive catastrophe yeah that's a uh what we call a transidiomatic little big band. It's a 10-piece group I co-lead uh, with Abraham Gomez Delgado, who's a fantastic composer and conga player and vocalist. Um, and he's coming from sort of a salsa background, but has always been messing with it in interesting ways, and I come from my background. Um, so it's been a nice chance for us to play together. And it's nice, I, I, as I said, you know, I think every, every big band should be co-led by a cornet player and a drummer, you know, in the following the Thad Jones Mel Lewis model. It works. You know, it's a good... You bring different attitudes, you bring different perspectives. And it's nice with that big a project, you kind of need a partner. You know, it's, sure. it's, it's insane to lead a 10-piece band right now. I mean, it's, I've, you know, of course, there's wonderful people out there leading 18 and 20-piece bands, but they're just clinically insane. Right. Um, it's, it's, you know, armchair insanity to try to lead even a 10-piece band. Um, but it's, it's just really fun. I mean, it just gives you such a kind of wealth of colors to play with and the personalities. It's just a great group of musicians. Um, and I think it's nice having two compositional visions within one group because it really forces everyone to be more broad in how they interpret stuff and then even in Abe's tunes my sensibility leaks in and in my tunes Abe's sensibility leaks in there and so it becomes something pretty unique I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that group um, and finally as we take our little 30,000 foot tour of Taylor Hobinum world um, <laughs> <laughs> will you uh, will you talk about uh, the commission or grant that you yeah it was nice it worked out really well all my tours got cancelled this summer because you know the European economy tanked 
And so I was really kind of financially strapped. And then I got a lovely call from Chamber Music America, <laughs> and they told me I'd gotten one of their commissioning grants this year. Um, it's a, and they've, it's really been impressive. They've, the Doris Duke Foundation gave them a pocket of money to help to really dig into jazz about 10 years ago. And since then, they've really done uh, supported some really interesting pieces. So I've applied for it about nine times, so I'm glad I finally got one. It was, it was, That's great. Don't quit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's very gratifying. Um, and it's nice because I'm revamping my sextet. I'm actually adding Bill Lowe, the sort of okay. my mentor and trombone player, and this incredible saxophone player, Jim Hobbs, leader of Fully Celebrated Orchestra. So sort of pulling together some of my Boston roots and my New York contemporaries like Mary Halverson and Tomo Fujiwara and Ken Feliano um, into one new group. So we'll be, I'll be writing a whole new book of music for that group, which will be launched in the fall. That's um, yeah, I'm excited. It's been a while since I've had a brand new group of musicians. and it, But this is also a group of musicians, all of who I've known, from between 10 and 20 years. I mean, this is... So I'm excited to sort of pull these different strands of my life together. Yeah, this is show like 180, and I think if we took out all of the music that was funded by Chamber Music America from the jazz, it would be like show 30. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> I, and it's, I gotta say, it's, it's amazing. I mean, jazz is so... I mean, or creative music is wherever you want it to... It's so undercapitalized in the States. I mean, it's, it's an old... Everyone's heard it before. It's an old right. saw. But it really is striking when you go to Europe and the level of support you get there and the level of respect and the level of funding that you get to pursue projects and the way you're treated at festivals and the way it's done and with the U.S. And it's, it's really tragic considering it's our art form. You know, it was an art form originated in this country, although now it's, you know, obviously global. Um, but the Doris Duke Foundation is really kind of waging a very brave and lonely battle to <laughs> try to direct some funding in there and, and supporting a real diversity of interesting projects. So I give them and Chamber Music America mad props because it's, it's not a... There's, I wish there's more people out there, you know, because we need it. It really is, it, you know... I mean, there, there's a certain strength to being forced to do it yourself. You know, I certainly... A lot of projects have happened because I've been forced to take my own initiative because there hasn't been anyone else there handing it to me. And I, that's definitely shaped me as an artist and made me a stronger artist, and I appreciate that. At the same time, you know, it'd be nice to have health insurance. You know, it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to, you know, have a slightly more comfortable style of life because sure. I think that would help the music as well. So, um, so yeah, so 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 you know, keep fighting for it. You know, it's the least we can do. <laughs> We're talking in the elevator on the way up uh, to the dining room studio here. Um, I'm both a cyclist and a New Englander, uh, as it sounds like you are. So uh, will you talk about uh, the, the crazily wonderful upcoming project uh, that you've got going on? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying out something I'm calling the Acoustic Bicycle Tour, um, which is I'm going to be doing a tour of New England, traveling only by bicycle, playing with a different ensemble every night. Um, and the venues range from you know art galleries to concert halls to universities to state parks. And... Um, so I'm going to be traveling with a pocket cornet, you know, tied to the back of my bike, traveling from about, you know, 30 miles to about 100 miles a day. Um, and the idea of it is just, I, I, it's, you know, as much as I, I love traveling to Europe and playing over there, but it sometimes feels, I feel very guilty. You know, you sort of, I just came back from Portugal where I went and I played two concerts over 40 hours and flew there and back. You know, it just seems a, as far as a carbon footprint concept, it's, it's, it's not, not so good. Um, so I kind of wanted to do a tour really just completely on my own steam, <laughs> you know. And I also feel that there's kind of a clear analogy between pursuing a path in creative music and traveling by bicycle, <laughs> in that it might not be the easiest way to get there, and it usually takes a lot longer, and you probably end up exerting a lot more effort, but ultimately is much more fun and sublimely worth it. And there's moments of sort of quick beauty and transcendence that you're not going to get, you know, if you're in an airplane or on a car right. or listening to Top 40 or whatever. You know, there, there's, a certain, yeah. there's, a, there's a certain patience that both take that I think... Um, there's a connection. So 
I originally thought of this idea I was going to go cross-country, and then many people pointed out that that was insane. And so I'm doing New England first, kind of as a pilot project, and seeing if, how it works and trying out some of the ideas. And then if that is successful, which I hope it will be, I'm going to try to either go cross-country or down the West Coast. Um, but it's been a lot of fun putting together. It's gonna, I'm going to be doing it in September, so from okay, September great. 10th to the 23rd. Uh, and be doing, and it'd be nice doing everything from. I'm going to be uh, playing with my, you know, working sextet and positive catastrophe, a couple of my main projects. Um, I'm also going to be doing a duo with Anthony um, in in Amherst, which will be really wonderful. Um, but then I'm also just hooking up with musicians in the local areas where I'm going to. So I'll be playing, you know, doing a workshop and a jam session in Vermont. You know, playing with some cats I know in New Hampshire. You know, going up and working with a opera singer friend of mine who lives in Portland, Maine. You know, so it's just working with the Aardvark Orchestra, which is sort of a Boston jazz institution, and doing a concert with them in Boston. So it'll just be I, that's the I like the idea of it connecting communities too, and and pointing out. Um, it's like the local food movement. You know, there, there's, there is an argument for a local music movement and really recognizing the sort of extraordinary stuff that's going on within an immediate area. So yeah. it's kind of a nice way to illustrate that as well. And are the, uh, are the tour dates on your website? Yes, or they will be very soon. Okay, <laughs> I'm, there's still a couple. I just had to switch my Vermont and New Hampshire days, which you know, would usually be no problem when you're planning a tour. But then I'm like, oh, wow, that means I'm biking from, you know, Brattleboro to Portland, Maine over two days. That's 190 wow. miles. Yeah. That's going to be tough. So <laughs> it's, there's, there's some, there's some uh, complexities to the organizing of this that are, that are unique. <laughs> that, yeah, uh, I'm sure. But again, well, I'm glad I'm doing New England first, and then I'll go cross-country. Yeah. Well, Taylor's website will be linked in the show notes, so please go check that out and go support him. Uh, well, we've, we've come really to the end of our time here, but uh, I, I'm so excited by so many of the things that you're doing, and it, it's, uh, it's really nice to talk to, to someone with a, a very broad vision. I think you've <laughs> taken the time to, to come on and do it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Nice talking to you, too. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. That's music from cornetist Taylor Ho Bynum. Please go to the show notes at thejazzsession.com and you'll find links to the Anthony Braxton Festival that's happening in New York on the 18th and 19th of June 2010. If you're listening to this show on the day that it's released or, or right thereabouts, it's this weekend. So please go out and support that. It's going to be incredible and uh, you're just going to see some combinations of musicians and some musical events that you just don't get to see very often and that you may never get to see again. Who knows? So please go out and support that music and uh, help keep Anthony's music alive and also help keep uh, the foundation that supports his music going far into the future. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com where you'll also find links to purchase the music you hear on the show and you'll find a donate button if you'd like to give something back. 
Thanks to the Respect Sextet for recording the theme music for this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. A friendly reminder that my first collection of poetry, Unexpected Sunlight, is now available. And in fact, if you're listening to this in real time, I'll be doing uh, a reading in Brooklyn on the 19th, which is this coming up Saturday. And uh, it's a private reading, but you can get an invitation. Just visit jasoncrane.org, and over on the right-hand side, you'll see a list of upcoming readings, and there's a link there to ask for an invitation to the reading on the 19th. Also, if you go to jasoncrane.org slash store, you can buy a copy of Unexpected Sunlight, published by Foothills Publishing. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back again next week, or next time, or whenever the heck there's another one of these things, for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. <laughs>